All right, let's, um, let's pray before we get started. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And Lord, that we learn about you and your character as revealed in your word. And Lord, we rejoice in that. And Lord, this day as we would study the doctrines of grace, and in particular, unconditional election, we pray that you would give us the right mindset, that we would come in humility with teachable hearts to your word, and Lord, that you would be honored in all of this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, just by way of review, we've spent a couple of lessons in this so far. The first was really just introducing the topic of the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, the Senate of Dort, and so forth, and last time which was some months ago, um, we discussed the doctrine of total depravity. <clears throat> but just by way of review, um, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, really what we're talking about is the doctrine of soteriology. That's the study of the doctrine of salvation. How is man saved? And we've said that really there's only two religions in the world. There's the religion of human effort and then the religion of divine accomplishment and every other religion in the world seeks to be acceptable to God by his own efforts and it is Christianity alone that rests in what God has already done in Christ in 1 Corinthians 4 7 um, it says for who regards you as superior what do you have that you did not receive and if you did not receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it? Uh, the Bible teaches that salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. You were just talking about Jonah and that wonderful verse in chapter 2 and verse 9. And Jonah, he says that specifically. Salvation is of the Lord. <clears throat> it is his work. So uh, by way of review, and if you weren't here, that's okay. You can answer this question. Who developed and formulated the five points of what's known as the five points of Calvinism. Was it John Calvin? Huh? Was it not John Calvin? No. It was later. Uh huh. Somebody. <clears throat> when was that meeting date? 1608, 1609. No, our last. Oh, that, um, um, March, I believe. March. Yeah. So, Dutch. So, you've got uh, James Arminius, right, who formulated the five points of Arminianism. So, the five, what came to be known as the five points of Calvinism was the result of the meetings of the Senate of Dort 50 years after Calvin's death, and it was in response to Arminius. So, as we know, those five points, those points that Arminius uh, advocated were the total opposite. So, rather than total depravity or inability, he would have said what? Man is not depraved. He can respond to the gospel in and of his own strength. Instead of unconditional election, he would have said conditional election. God looked down to the corridors of time and saw Rob Graham, that he would be a good guy and come to faith. And so I'll think I'll elect you. No, it's unconditional, as we'll see today. Uh, particular redemption, that Christ died for every one of his people, they would say universal atonement, and so forth. And so these points were developed in a response to the heresy 
that was going on in the Netherlands. And so this council of meetings, representatives from various churches came together, and that is what's known as the Senates of Dort, and the Canons of Dort is what the finished document is. Now in regards to total depravity, <clears throat> by way of review, um, very simply natural man uh, in and of his own non-renewed state is a sinner by practice. So by, by nature and then by practice. Um, sinful man lacks the ability in his own strength to respond to God and the gospel. Can you think of a verse that would defend that? He's got his sheet. <laughs> Which Can sinful man respond to God in his own strength apart from regeneration? Okay, while well, you're looking for that. Yeah. Anyway, the answer is that no, he cannot, uh, absolutely cannot. Uh, John 6, 44 would be one verse uh, to consider. When somebody look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Um, Abe, if you want to get that. <clears throat> but John 6 and verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Uh, we pinpointed that that word draw could be translated drag. It's the same word when they drug the 150 fish into the boat. I mean, it's, it's, it needs some force, some irresistible grace needs to be there, some, the drawing power of God. And so, and then 1 Corinthians 2.14, read that one. So spiritual things are, they just go over his head. He cannot perceive them and understand them. Did you have one in Romans? Oh, uh, oh okay, that's fine. Yeah, but Romans 3 would be, I mean, 3.23, but even 3.10 to 3.19, where what is man? I mean, his, his throat, uh, let's go, I don't want to. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is no one that does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, etc. So we looked at those verses last time, but some of the most powerful verses leading up to what Rob said, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned, but he builds the case quoting from various psalms here that man is completely depraved. And some argue, well, that's, that's not fair. What about man's free will? Well, man is free and has, he, he can choose his choice of words and his accent, actions, but his free will is limited to his nature. So if he has a sinful nature, everything he chooses will be sin. If he has a renewed nature, he can choose righteousness, but he can still choose wickedness because he's not perfected and glorified. When the child of God is glorified, he can only glorify the Lord and will never sin again. <clears throat> so that's by way of review. Now let's, let's jump into the second point referred to as unconditional election. And the truth here that since man is totally depraved, as we've made the case for that, no one would ever be saved if God did not elect them. Right? We've just built the case. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. 
No one seeks after God. That's the truth of the word of God. So if apart from God electing a people, no one would be saved, right? And so that's very clear here. Now let's look at a few texts. Um, Rob, can you get Isaiah 46, 9 to 11? Uh, Charlie, Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. And then I'll get, a, I'll get the last one here, but... Our triune God is a master architect. Everything is planned by him. Every event in human history, every raindrop, every snowflake, every blade of grass, every flower that blooms, the wind that blows, everything is ordained by God. Nothing happens by chance. Let's go ahead and take the Isaiah passage. Remember this is stands for strong words. It's kind of hard to read that and to say, oh, God's not really in control. <laughs> Clearly he's in control. Clearly he's foreordained every event. And Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. Ron, what was the, what was the verses in 46 then? 9 to 11 also. 9 to 11. Okay. Um, I start at 7 because it's a break in line, the NIV. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right, thank you. There's several things here. Um, just that last phrase, 11b, okay? Having been predestined according to whose purpose? His purpose. And by the way, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's completely sovereign. Verse 10, we've been looking at in our sermon series in Ephesians um, here with the view to the administration. And that's, the, that's God's secret plan. Suitable to the fullness of time, summing up all things. Verse 9, um, the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ, in him. Personal pronouns used there, but it's in Christ. And so, and then chapter 3, and just turn the page one. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. And then verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, we see these words, his eternal purpose. You see this administration, this plan. He is working all things out. So, now as we come to unconditional election, I think you would agree with me that this can be a very touchy subject. Um... Christians have debated through the centuries over these truths, really all of the points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace. 
there's been various debates, and even in our day, there's, it can be a very touchy topic. Some might reason, well, you know, that's too deep of doctrine. I mean, God is just love. Why can't we just keep it simple? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Why do you have to bring an election into all that? Just tell them God loves them. You know, that's how they would argue. Or, I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to be controversial. Uh, many preachers uh, would say that, well, I do believe those truths. I see them in the Bible, but I'm not going to preach them because it could, it could cause controversy or division. What's wrong with that idea? By the way, I just talked to someone today that attends a Baptist church less than five minutes from here that told me that very thing about his pastor. It's a lie. He's telling a lie. He's not telling what God says. So he's, maybe he's not telling, now if he's preaching the opposite, that would be a lie. But he's not preaching the whole counsel of God. Remember what Paul says, that I've, I've the whole counsel of God. And so, yeah, the point. Yeah, okay. It's close. So there you go, yeah. Um, also, it's a touchy topic because it shatters our pride. We want to have some role in our salvation. You know, that, you know, I was reading the Bible. I saw the light and all of that. Like it was, I was so smart. You know, I finally figured it out. No, I mean, this is, it's totally humbling to realize that you are blind spiritually. Apart from him opening up our eyes and renewing our hearts, we would never respond to the gospel the other part of that would be then, not only is it pride, but I think for other people not to have the same shot at salvation that I do, as a sinner, doesn't sound right here. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't sound right. But yeah. It's not yeah, we're gonna we're, I'm gonna touch on that. that you're okay. exactly right. That's that's where it's, it can become really. Uh, J.C. Ryle says nothing gives such an offense and stirs up such bitter feelings among the wicked as the idea of God making any distinction between man and man. And loving one person more than the other person. So that's even speaking to those outside the church when you try to talk about predestination or something like that. We must remember, like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. We're never fully going to understand God and understand all of these mysteries. There's, there, we're, even at the end of studying to see what God's word says and looking at many verses, we're still going to kind of scratch our heads because we're not God. And if we could understand it all perfectly, then we would be God, right? <laughs> but we're not. God is incomprehensible. He's altogether transcendent. We're never going to fully understand everything. And so I can't answer every objection, uh, but we're going to let the Bible speak uh, for itself. Now, if those who they claim to say, we believe the Bible, but we don't believe in election... There's something wrong with that, right? Because the Bible teaches election from way back to Abraham. I mean, Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham. One man, chosen, right? You see, actually, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is a, a great text to look at here. <clears throat> we even see Nate, the, the nation of Israel, which began, of course, with Abraham, as a picture of election. Look at chapter 7 and verse 6. <clears throat> for you are a holy people to the Lord your God the Lord your God has what chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth now get this 
The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. <clears throat> he goes on to say through this chapter, that it's nothing in you why I chose you. I mean, you're the scrawniest and weakest of all nations, but I set my love upon you. I'm fulfilling my oath and my promise given to your forefathers, i.e. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and down. And so there's a picture of unconditional election, national election, which is really what Israel was. That was the favored nation. Obviously, in the New Covenant, we see that the greater plan of God and large part of Ephesians is, is showing us that no Gentiles are included in this uh, people of God. Now let's go to the New Testament. Matthew 24. Turn there. <clears throat> as you know, uh, Matthew 24 has been referred to as the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about the signs of Christ, of his return. The disciples come and ask him questions. But I want you to look Jesus is not afraid to use the term elect or chosen ones, okay? You know, like, like we're saying, some people say, no, those, those, those are taboo, you know? But Jesus wasn't afraid to use it. I want you to read uh, Charlie, verse 22 and 24. Actually, just read 22 to 24, I guess. Okay. And if those days had not been cut short, no, uh, it's chapter 24. Yes, yes. Okay. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. And verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the and then even down in verse 30, 31, let's look at that, I'll read that. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together, here it is again, his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Our Lord is not ashamed to call his special chosen people his elect chosen ones. And then Colossians um, uh, chapter 3 and verse 12 quickly. <clears throat> and this is just a sampling again. I could have given you a long list of verses here. but So again, a familiar passage, Colossians 3. You just kind of almost read over it without thinking what it means. 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, da 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 put on a heart of compassion, kindness, etc., etc., but again, the chosen of God. There is a choice that God has made, a distinction among certain people. And then finally, and I'd like for you to turn to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Rob, could you read 13 and 14? Who 
So, I mean, that verse is just packed, but you can see that God has chosen you when? When does it say? The first fruits through sanctification by the Spirit. Okay, the first fruits is the, uh, yeah. And that's, that is more of a literal reading, actually, but it, the idea is from early on. So God, God has chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, for this he called you through our gospel. He's even saying, what does that look like? Okay, we're called and we're chosen. And then he, there's even here that the idea of how we come to faith. There's a calling, an irresistible calling, and it's always by the means of the gospel. And the purpose here, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, don't want to belabor that point too much, but everywhere in the Bible... The Bible talks about choice, selection, election, being chosen by God, that God has a special people. So, election is undeniable. That's the point here. But the question is, is election conditional or unconditional? That's really the question we need to wrestle with. And I submit to you, before the foundation of the world, the Father unconditionally chose a people for salvation. Again, back to Ephesians chapter 1, one of the clearest texts here. Um, Verses 4 and 5, if whoever can get there first would read that for us. Excellent. And so you've got here the idea of verse 3, all every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as. And so what did he do? He chose us. But when did he choose us? Was, was it after he saw that we were going to be a good person and, you know, respond to the gospel or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some would say that. Yeah. But, but it, it clearly says when before before the foundation of the world. There was a selection made before any of us were even born, before the world was even created. And notice the purpose here. This gets into another topic, but that we would be holy and blameless before him. It's not just we're chosen and now we can continue on to be sinners. We are chosen to stand out, to be lights, to be, be pictures of transformation and reconciliation and, and holy. And then... Another no-no word among some, he predestined us. So now he predestined it that we would be adopted as sons into the family of God. Um, and it's not based on any human merit that we have done. And Romans, we could spend much time here. Romans 9.16, for example. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. And the amazing thing is, it's, it's not, again, not that we've done anything good, because earlier in Romans, in chapter 5 and verse 8, 
in that while we were yet sinners, we were sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for us? When we were sinners. Not that, in that while we were in our reformed, healthy, you know, state of doing good that he died for us. No, in that while we were yet sinners, that's when he died for us. Now, some say that God foresaw that who would respond to the gospel, and then he elected them. And so it's as though God has his binoculars. He's looking through the, the movie screen of, of history, frame by frame, and he says, oh, there's Abe. Look, Abe's repenting. He's believing. Okay, I'm going to elect him. Okay, it's not, it's not like that at all. It's completely opposite of that. In fact, in Acts, the early chapters of Acts, Peter is preaching and notice this language that he uses here um, in verse chapter 2 verse 23 speaking of Christ this man speaking of Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death notice here that it was a predetermined plan of God and even and the foreknowledge of God that Christ would be handed over to godless men. Sinful men were acting in their free will when they nailed him to the cross, but it was all part of God's greater plan. William Perkins, the early Puritan from the uh, late 16th century, says, We are not elected either for our faith or according to our faith, but to faith. That is elected that we might believe. So you see what he's saying there? We're not elected um, because we have faith or according to our faith, but we are elected to faith. That's why we're chosen, that we would believe. So foreknowledge in the Bible has much more than just the idea of like seeing events and seeing the future. It's more than just the, the, the silly illustration of looking at the frames of a, of a movie film or something uh, of history to, to look ahead. Foreknowledge in the Bible speaks of an intimate relationship, right? And the idea of being for love. When God has foreknowledge about Charlie, he was loving Charlie. There was a for love there. And God choosing because of un, or foreseen faith undermines the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Remember those verses we began with. He's determined the beginning from the end. He's ordered all, all events. And so... When you begin to say that it's just looking ahead to see who would believe, God's not sovereign anymore. Man's sovereign, right? Man is sovereign. If it's up to him to, to sway God as, as who's, who will be chosen, uh, makes man in control of his own destiny. So Arminians who reason foreknowledge like this still have to deal with the fact that God determines the future of every person. This is an interesting thing. I thought of um, this week. So think about it. So even Arminians who say, well, but God looked ahead and saw who would believe and then he elected them. They still have the problem of the idea that some will be saved and some will be damned. I mean, that's still, the, that's still a very real thing. And so God allows people to be born who he knows will reject Christ upon the hearing of the gospel and ultimately will end up in hell. So does that mean that we're mere puppets? Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. Remember, we, there's, we're, we're, we have a free will, uh, freedom of will within the nature, our nature. And um, 
He regenerates us by making us willing and able to believe, to respond to the gospel. Now, I found uh, it's been a while since we've taken our Sunday school classes in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, but back in chapter 3, I think I took a couple weeks on this, I just want to read a couple paragraphs to show you how helpful it is to have a confession to help explain these things with the scripture proofs. But this is of God's decree. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. And so that's just the first sentence of the first paragraph. I'm not going to read all of that. But getting to paragraph 5 and 6. Those of mankind that are predestined to life God, before the foundation of the world, was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. You see what that paragraph is saying? There's nothing conditional about it. It's out of his free grace, his free mercy. There's nothing in the creature that motivates God to make this predestination and selection. Paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they are elected, being fallen in Adam, they are redeemed in Christ, they're effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, and they are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called and justified and adopted, sanctified and saved, but the elect only. And then, this is the last paragraph of the chapter, but just the first sentence. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special care and prudence. And it goes on to explain that. Because, so the writers of the confession realize these are high and lofty things, but it's certainly taught in the word of God. And so those are excellent chapters to help explain the very thing that we're discussing today. Kurt, can yeah, I ask a question? You bet. It, it keeps revolving in my mind, and maybe the others here, that God had that secret plan. Charlie was in, in, in that plan. I was one of the chosen. Uh, he's given me the spirit spirit of God. But in my free will, I actually have the choice to sin as well. Where in the Bible does it say that you can be selected by God and answer that question like at the Adam and Adam? Well, sure enough, you're, you're, you're selected by God, but look, you're a sinner. You keep sinning, or you do sin every day. And that's that's part of the mystery to the outside community is that we, we look like hypocrites. They say we're hypocrites because they see us sinning or they, they hear us sinning. And we have that, that amount of free will to go against God, but we're still part of his plan. We're still the elect. So there's a balance there, and that's, yeah. that's where sanctification and the whole Christian life comes in. We're justified, which means we are seen righteous in Christ, but the day-to-day -day working that out is that we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. And so that is a process that goes on okay. for all of our lives till we take our last breath to glorification. You kind of the very verse we're going to go to, actually, we're going to talk about that in Romans 8. But um, 
So that's the whole interplay of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5 amplifies on that a lot. The latter part, right before it lists the fruits, the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit, he talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that's a very real battle that we have. The born-again Christian may slip into sin, certainly sin, but he will keep short accounts. The born-again Christian, the true child of God, might even fall into a a season, a season of backsliding for some months, but ultimately, because of the persevering grace of God, will bring him back. He will have no peace in his sin. The difference between the unconverted is they sin wholeheartedly and they think nothing of it. Now, they have a conscience, sometimes they know deep, deep down that, that it's wrong, but the child of God can find no peace in rebellion and in habitual sin and, and that kind of stuff. The verse I referenced in Galatians 5. <clears throat> And this is really what true freedom in Christ is. Um, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Down in verse 13. And you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The people talk about our freedoms as a license to sin. That's not what this is speaking of. We are now free to do good to others and to glorify the Lord. That's what true Christian liberty is. Now, verse 15, or 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may do the things that you do not please. But if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are not under the law. So Christopher Love, one of my favorite Puritans, has something like 25 sermons on chapter 5 and verse 17, the battle of the flesh and the spirit. Um, But, I mean, there's a lot that's been written here, but that's a very real battle that continues, Charlie. And and the difference is, it's, it, it's when I sin, if I raise my voice to one of my children or to my wife or have a lustful thought, I'm grieved because I know that grieves God and I know that Christ died for that sin and I want to repudiate it and repent and, and run away from it. So that's the difference. And, and so, that, a lot, and a lot of that's internal, isn't it? Because it's happening on the inside. So that's why the world can look on and say, oh, look, they're just a, you know, a bunch of hypocrites or whatever. But... At the end of the day, the overall picture of the life of a child of God really should stand out and that there's something different about that family. There's something different about that man. I've seen him under stress and duress and under pressure. You know what I mean? We should stand out in the workplace. That We, we shouldn't be known as <laughs> you know, careless sinners, mm-hmm. um, hopefully. so. And then Romans 8, this is where I was going just a minute ago, verse 29 and 30, if you want to write it down. Um, and the point of this is that none... Of the elect is ever lost. God never goes back and says, Why did I elect that guy? Look, he just keeps sinning all the time, you know? No. Look at Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. No. (laughs) It's hard not to just camp on some of these verses and just expound them, but notice it says, Whom? What does whom mean? There's a group of people in mind, right? Yeah, the elect, and, and so it's, it's, there's, a, there's a certain group of people. It's not just vague. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed into the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So we are predestined to actually become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. That's that sanctification process. And then verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, notice, he also glorified. When are we glorified? It's spoken in the aorist tense, past tense here, because it is as good as done. It's not that he justified these whom he justified. If they're really, really good, he'll glorify them in the end. It doesn't say that. That we, He also glorified, so it is sure he loses none. Um, for the sake of time, we're not going to take time on this, but the opposite of the doctrine of election is the doctrine of reprobation. And that's a very, very difficult um, uh, thing to think about. But let's just look at a couple of verses. And Abe, could you go to Proverbs 16.4? Charlie, uh, Jude 4. And I'll go to 1 Peter. These are the three strongest verses that I know of in the Bible that speak of <clears throat> the doctrine of reprobation. And simply put, reprobation is God positively electing some to hell. Um, and some say, well, he elected some. It's kind of like all of mankind's coming over the waterfall. And he puts a couple of cups out there and saves some of them, but the rest he just lets go. But the reality is he has the power to catch all of them and elect all of them. And so thereby letting them go, that analogy breaks down, but... <laughs> He's positively electing them to hell. And it's not because, and, and they can never say, and that's, I'm going to get to this, they can never say, well, it's not fair. We're, that's where we're going to go in just a minute. It's because of their sin that why anyone goes to hell. So let's read these verses. Um, Proverbs 16, 4. 16, 4. The Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Okay, so he's prepared the wicked for the day of doom. Uh, Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of those in complete opposition and they've been predestined to condemnation, 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. Very strong words that they were appointed, uh, predestined to this doom. Now let's quickly move into some say election is unfair. Uh, one preacher said, and this is a famous TV preacher, said, I can't think of a more perverted, discouraging, sick theory when, in referring to election. So obviously the hostility of this television preacher here, but... The miracle of election, and this is where we've got to change our thinking, and rather than saying we've got all these rights and it's not fair, I'm wanting to smack the table, right? We need to change our thinking. The miracle of election is that a holy God would save anyone who are totally depraved, that deserve hell. Why would God save anyone? When you really understand the depths of your own sin, the magnitude of God's holiness and his justice, perfection 
and all of that. And then you compare that to your sin, it's like, except for the grace of God and the grand plan of God in sending Christ to redeem a people. Why are the non-elect condemned? Well, we just looked at those verses on reprobation, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's because they're wicked. It's because they reject Christ. It's because of their sin. That's why anyone goes to hell. It's because of their own sin. No one can ever say that's not fair. And isn't it interesting, again, for the sake of time, we won't spend much time here, but Paul in Romans 9, talking about these high mysteries of for example, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Talking about the selection of God, that it's all of his mercy. And so these objections. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God, the thing molded to its creator? And on down. So, questions. How can a holy God allow evil? Well, that has been uh, a point of tension. Just one illustration of this. Think of Joseph as he's sold by his brothers into slavery, right? And finally he reveals himself to his brothers as they come during the famine. You know the story in the latter chapters of Genesis. And in Genesis 50 and verse 20, it says, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Now, Joseph's brothers were sinning. They were doing something bad, right? I mean, they're selling their brother. They tried, we were going to kill him first, right? Wasn't it Reuben that said, no, don't kill him. Let's sell him to the, remember that? And so they really did mean it for bad, but God and his infinite, the complexity of his eternal plan used that for good, for the preserving of the nation of Israel, that during the famine, they would have died off Here's Joseph to the rescue. All the food stores brings in the nation into Egypt, the land of Goshen, so that they may grow and get strong. I've heard it illustrated like a stream flows downhill and you can point it whatever direction you want. It's still flowing downhill, like to your gardens or whatever. Well, wicked men are used by God who give, this, who give them opportunity to express their evil natures, but it all works out for God's greater and good purpose. I mean... Where's the biggest illustration of that? We read it earlier in Acts 2. The cross, right? Sinful men did what they would to the hands of our Savior, right? But it's, it, it's all part of God's predetermined plan for the good, for the salvation of all of his people. So in conclusion, how is this doctrine beneficial? How is this doctrine edifying for us as children of God. And I just I wrote down a few things, but think about it. How what's the benefit of knowing about the doctrine of unconditional election? What kind of feelings, what kind of emotions do you have? Gratitude. Gratitude. <laughs> Gratitude. Amen. Right? When we figure out it's <laughs> it's it's nothing in me, right? What else? Security, good, absolutely. Um, assurance of salvation, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is greater than I, no one will snatch them out of his hand. That's John 10. Um, how about the end of Romans 8? You know, the whole thing about the love of God there. I mean, 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If he did not spare his own son, etc., etc. And he, then he, what does he say at the end? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, height, death, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's bold assurance. That's bold assurance of salvation, for sure. About greater worship and adoration. Paul touches on that in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It's a greater worship and devotion to him. Gratitude. Assurance of salvation. Humility. Kind of throw that in there with gratitude, right? It's like, you know. Turn to Acts 13. We're praying for our big Adams Avenue outreach. We'll be praying for that in just a few moments. But um, how about this doctrine is beneficial in that it gives encouragement and boldness to spread the gospel. Our hope of spreading, if, if man is really totally depraved, we know that there are some elect. So that gives us encouragement in preaching the gospel. We pray that God will bring hundreds of his elect by our booth to take gospel literature, to hear us preach, to counsel with us. And we know the elect, if it's that time that the Lord has ordained, will believe. Now look at Acts 13 and verse 48. This is a summary statement Paul has been preaching. Um, Paul turns to the Gentiles. This is when the Jews were um, rejecting him. And then in verse 48, again, don't have time to set the whole context, but when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They're sovereign results. The Apostle Paul's preaching. The ones that have been appointed to eternal life believed. You don't want the ones that are not appointed to eternal life to claim to believe. Those are false converts. And so that's a beautiful picture. That's what we want. We want those who've been appointed to eternal life to believe. Now, can we make distinctions among men? Hey, he's wearing a blue shirt. He might be elect. Oh, look how nice shaven that guy is. Wait, this guy has piercings and tattoos all over his forehead and his arm. He can't be one of God's elect. See, we want to judge people on the outside. Our scripture reading Sundays is that verse where it clearly says, where the Lord is telling Samuel, right? Um, I look at the heart, you see. So we don't know who is elect. So that's why we preach indiscriminately to every creature. Wasn't it Spurgeon that said, if all the elect had a yellow stripe down their back, he'd go around London pulling down shirt collars looking for the yellow stripe. And when he found one, he'd preach the gospel to him. Um, but we don't know who the elect is. So we preach indiscriminately to all men. But the point being, it gives us encouragement to preach because we know that there is a people out there. So, in conclusion, let us come with humility to the scriptures. Let us be willing to learn. Um, some of this is, um, it takes some time to meditate on, to think on. When you're reading your Bible daily, look for these doctrines because they're going to start jumping out. Or they will be jumping out. And we must remember the delicate balance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. So God is sovereign. God will, those who are appointed to eternal life believe, 
but also it says that you must repent and believe. So there is something in and of the sinner that they need to do something. So there's human responsibility as well, but we know it is God that enables them to do that. Repentance is a gift of God. So no one's going to repent and believe who has not been born again. They're born again first, then they believe, but we still, so there's a delicate balance there. They can repent, but not maybe to God. They can repent to their family. They yeah, there could be some reform, external family, reformation, but, but true heart conversion. So any final questions on this? Well, let's, we'll spend some time in prayer. Ralph, would you close our time just now, this, this part in prayer, please? Oh, After okay. looking at the word.